retreat session contemplating death. And I hope everybody's having a useful week in between. I didn't say pleasant. It probably isn't going to be very pleasant, but if we're taking this seriously and using the homework uh, in a way that uh, is a concerted effort to really come to um, what it means um, to live with death, and then um, I think a great deal of insight and clarity will arise around the subject. So I encourage everybody to continue to pursue the homework. It's um, really much more important than the two hours that we spend in the, or as important as the two hours that we spend in, in the class together. So I'm going to continue to develop the theme. Um, the, I left some extra copies of the Marana Sati Sutra uh, on the table there uh, for those who didn't get a copy last week. In addition to that, I have uh, an extra sheet of paper uh, that actually comes from um, the Tricycle magazine. And uh, it so happens that uh, there's an article on the Marana Sati Sutra in the Tricycle magazine. So I encourage you to read that. But this particular page I thought was excellent. It gave uh, the essence of the sutta as well as a commentary on how to use the sutta uh, in terms of thought and reflection. How to keep the reflective uh, posture of the sutta and have it serve you in a useful manner. So everybody make sure that you pick up this handout and to read it uh, and to really use that as the homework for this week. The homework for this week will be to do the first three of, of the inevitabilities of death, the first three uh, reflections. And actually, you can pick one of those three. You don't have to pick all three, just one of the three that resonates with you. <clears throat> so um, to continue to explore the uh, values and difficulties in working with this contemplation, I'd like to start off with a quote from Malarepa, who is a uh, Tibetan uh, yogi of, um, of some renown. And he says, uh, in brief, without being, mindfulness, without being mindful of death, whatever dharma practice you take up will merely be superficial. So what does that mean? I mean, most of us don't incorporate death uh, in an ongoing basis in our Dharma practice and seems to be what Malarepa is hinting at here is that unless somehow we include death, somehow we include death in some form or other in our meditation practice, that we're not really coming to the essence of what meditation is about. So. Why is that? Dharma practice, as we understand, is the practice of looking at the truth of things, the nature of things, the way things really are. And, of course, one of our big avoidance uh, when we look at the way things are is avoiding the ending or the depths of things. We don't want our relationships to end. We don't want summer to move into fall. We don't want it to get darker around here and start raining. Am I hitting home? 
And therefore, uh, we live in the false idea of the continu continuity or the continuation of what we want life to be at the expense of the ending. And unless, according to Malarepa, we allow the ending to also be the part and process of our living experience, then we are somehow being pretentious in our idea that we are growing. And what are we growing in relationship to? If we aren't growing in relationship to the understanding of the way things are. It also um, defies the idea, if we don't start working with death and dying, and you know, it's not only the physical, thinking about your physical death that I'm talking about here, but just beginning to include the joy of birth and the grief of loss in the whole range of what it means to be alive. Really, if we, um, if we are fixed on obtaining something, and this relates back last week to the homework as well as to the description of the Buddhists, Buddhas, uh, and when he said that somebody will have difficult dying if they are attached or um, or, uh, or attached to sense pleasure, that if we just perpetuate the idea of having, of gain, uh, then we're always moving away from the idea of not having and losing. And if our I, if our idea of life is to, in our goals of life, are to you know, have a nice home and to have children and to have so much money when we retire and to have a good job and to be uh, renowned citizens and on and on. Uh, and if we're always working towards those accomplishments, those goals, and setting those as our priorities in the way we look at life, then we aren't, we really don't have much time to really be alive in the process of just being who we are. We're always in the process of becoming something we want to be. And so we're really never settled back and relaxed with ourselves just as we are. And therefore, we're never realizing who we are in this moment. We're always trying to become someone else and sort of lopping, leaning forward into the moment, toppling into the next moment, away from the one that we're living in. And so in some ways, Having, or wanting to gain, or wanting to access, is a form of perpetuation of life at the expense of death. And that being, or settling back, is the meeting of the life and death. It's just being with somebody, being with ourselves. Now, if there weren't any death, having, would be what we would want to perpetuate. It would perpetuate itself, would it not? If there was no such thing as death of anything, then I could relish in the fact that just having and accumulating would somehow be what life was about. And the bumper sticker that you see every once in a while that says, he who acquires the most toys wins, would be have some validity. But the fact is that not only do we die, but things die as well. And therefore, wanting to acquire, the, in the acquisition, there is a certain death. And uh, Ajahn Chah once spoke to that fact. Somebody asked him, 
uh, how they keep from getting upset when they uh, when life fails them. And Akin Cha said, well, you see that glass? Uh, he says, when I um, acquire that glass, I already see it as broken. And then when it does break, my heart doesn't break with it. That in the very sense of having, the very sense of acquiring is the, also the sense of demise and the sense of loss in that thing. Things die. I die. Our world dies. Our inward world dies. Our inward world is always cresting and falling, and waning and waxing, moving on to something else, evolving. And then we face the what's called the eight worldly concerns. You know, uh, again, it's wanting life in one way as opposed to the other. It's the gain and loss. It's praise and blame, happiness and unhappiness, fame and disrepute. And we set our course to achieve one end of that spectrum, one end of that continuum, the gain, the praise, the happiness, and the fame. And yet, the very nature is that nothing remains constant and nothing is always moving towards the positive. So that if we just maintain a certain position for a certain length of time, the ingredients, the whole thing will change on us and what we thought we were gaining we'll actually lose at some point. Something will happen where there will be some loss which upsets us. Where we thought we were leading towards happiness, we'll find ourselves miserable. Where we thought we were being praised, all of a sudden it'll turn on us and we'll find ourselves caught in blame. And the fame that we had will be in flight and we'll find ourselves in disfavor. That's the nature of life. That is what life is. Life is not always one side of the equation. And in fact, to live as if life were one side of the equation is to not to understand the relativity of the two. How you can't have just one side of the equation. But the more you pursue the left hand, the more the right hand comes in on, on you. The more subtle we want the left hand to be, the more subtle we want our desires, our happiness, our forms of happiness, our forms of pleasure, the more subtle the forms of discomfort also creep in. Like the refined wine taster, whose tastes are so acutely tuned to the taste of wine that they can only enjoy the 1952 Cabaret Sauvignon from some remote region of France. All the other wines don't live up to their expectation or their sense of pleasure. And so at some point, just stepping back from all of that, I says, well, what is this now? Let me just step back from this. All of this attempting to make life so refined in its pleasurable sense, let me just step back from that. We have some relief to that. There's enormous pressure and stress in that. It's a tension that you can feel almost as we speak about it. Let me just step back and see what this whole thing is about. Suddenly, when I do that, when I just step back, and I say, okay, I'll take the uh, 97 you know, red wine. I don't even care what kind it is. 
suddenly something else begins to fill the space, the psychic space. So what is that something else, you see? Something that I didn't have time for before. Where I was always leaning forward, trying to obtain, trying to possess. I had no time for this before. Suddenly relationships become important. Suddenly caring becomes important. Suddenly generosity, affection becomes important. As long as I'm looking for the world to provide something for me, there's a very strong relationship of the world and me. And where can there be generosity when there's that sort of tension and that sort of denial of everybody else, negation really of everybody else in relationship to the world of what I want? But when I can step back and suddenly everything can come in, I'm not trying to deny this nor that, life nor death, fame or disrepute, praise or blame, happiness or unhappiness, then there is a different way that I am in the world, a different posture that I take. I was watching a, uh, uh, some hour uh, of Mike Wallace, uh, interviews on Mike Wallace. I like 60 Minutes, so I was interested in this interview with him. And it went through a lot of his 60-minute um, interviews. But the one thing that actually stuck with me, uh, he's like 79 or 80 years old, was at the very end of this hour, he said, you know, I've done everything in journalism I always wanted to do. There's nothing left for me really to accomplish. I'm not really too interested in doing more, or being better at it, really. I just want the people who know me to feel more relaxed and good about me being with him. And if you know his interview style, he's a kind of can have a kind of a hard driving style. And to me, it was it was a it was an understanding of this very point that we're making. That at 80 years old, when he's at the end of his life, he realizes now, which is uh, actually good insight. And oftentimes we don't, no matter how long we live, we don't have this insight. He realizes that, you know, it's just, it's different. It's not wanting or moving or being ambitious, but it's, it's a different relationship to people. You know, oftentimes when we're with the dying, uh, the dying person will be uh, going through some crisis in which they're uh, being very hard on their family. Uh, sometimes a lot of verbal abuse and screams and anger. And one of the things that uh, the hospice staff has learned to ask the patient is, how do you want to be remembered? How do, you want the, how do you want your family to remember you? Now, when you're on, when you're 30 years old and somebody asks you that, it doesn't have the impact of being on the edge of your life with a few days to live. Because how you are with your family or what the parting relationship is, is going to be the final taste they have in their mouth of you when you do die. And we are creating that taste as we live moment after moment. But more importantly, it's not just to our family, but it's to the whole world. It's the impact of the whole world. You know, In purgatory, they say, uh, in Christian sense, they say they weigh your 
all the good things you did with all the bad. I know nothing about that, and I don't particularly ascribe to that point of view. But I do think that there is an inherent value or an inherent mark that we put on the world, that we have on the world as we live our 70 or 80 years. And that there's something in that we are always moving the world towards more understanding, towards more clarity, or towards more confusion. And I use that word rather than good or evil because I really see that the, what good is, is is a movement towards clarity. And what evil is, is a movement towards confusion. It could also be said towards separation and towards individualism. And so it's not until we really access dying in our lives on an ongoing way so that we feel death as being a part of this, that we can settle into our beingness. Before that, we're afraid of it. As a matter of fact, the reason that we try so hard to have things is because we want to deny death itself. And having, when we're moving forward and we're gaining something, we're denying the absence, we're denying the being, we're denying the fact of our own demise because we're substantiating ourselves, we're holding on and perpetuating ourselves in the having. We extend our identity into what we hold on to. If this is mine. This land is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And it's not until we can settle back and just be with ourselves that death comes into the picture. Before that, we're just in various phases of denial, including how we relate to our meditation. Trying to become somebody better, trying to do something with it, trying to access certain qualities of mind, trying to become spiritual is a denial of death. And a denial of death is a denial of generosity, is a denial of caring, is a denial of affection. It is only when we can really allow death into our hearts that all of that comes in with us, including the sorrow of our lifetime, which is one of the reasons that we run so hard from it, because of the uh, accumulation of grief that we all feel in relationship to our life. We don't want to feel that. We don't want to feel the loss. We only want to feel the gain. Death is the ending of time. And as long as I can have something that, or I can think of something that I don't have, then I perpetuate time into the future. When I settle back into just being who I am, then I end time. I end the falseness of my extending myself into the future towards some kind of acquisition, gain, holding on. Death is the ending of time. And in a more subtle way, we use time, we use the future, we use the past, to keep us from the timeless. Every once in a while we'll be sitting here and something will descend. It's not coming from me. It's a community descent. It's a community benediction. It's as if you have to leave the windows open and just hope it blows in. Suddenly there is no sense of being other 
or being more alive someplace else. There is absolute contentment in that. There is just a resting. And to feel that, just to be able to get a sense of that, for even a second, for even an instant. Where's the fear of death? That is where death is, in that moment. But is it laced with fear? Is it laced with the trepidation that we project upon it? Quite the contrary. It's laced with fullness of heart. It's laced with genuine affection and the joy of aliveness. This is the essence of right understanding and right attitude, which is at the heart of the Eightfold Path. Right understanding is what I know about life, and right attitude is how I will direct my energies in that life. If I know life contains death and I'm willing to open to it, willing to expose everything to it, then I also want to learn about it. I want to discover, I want to uncover, I want to create, I want to always be open. This culture, we value people who have opinions about things. And somehow the more opinions people generate, the clearer they are. But that's not death. Death is the innocence of heart that's always learning. The attitude in which there's new discovery, something new to explore, something new to add, in which we're not entrenched in any position to what is being said. Right understanding and right attitude come from the understanding of death or allowing death into our life. And most subtly, this Malarepa quote, which we are still talking about, believe it or not, again, just to read it in brief, without being mindful of death, whatever Dharma practice you take up will be merely superficial. Unless we understand that who we are ends, that who we are really is, both the ending and the beginning, moment after moment, then all of our practice and all of our life will be for the perpetuation of self rather than for the realization of self. And the perpetuation of self, no matter how subtle, no matter how engrossing, no matter how refined, no matter how pleasant, is a denial of death. In the grossest aspect of this, I was my first meditation teacher. I was living in a singles apartment. And a man came through who said he was going to give a meditation class. And I was, I wanted a meditation teacher. So I went to this class. And he charged us all $10 to come in to it. We were going to pay $10 the first week. And then if we came back the second week, we were obligated to much more money than that. I can't remember how much it was. And he said, okay, week one, this is what I want you to do into practice. I want you to think about the thing you most want and dwell upon it all week long. 
And what you're going to find is that this meditation will bring it to you. You just need to Cadillac anything. And you'll find that after so X length time, but he couldn't promise how long, it would come to me. Now, I wasn't, I was very new into all of this. But even then, something <laughs> smelled fishy. <laughs> and I never went back. For it felt to me as if that was somehow, and there were a lot, no, there weren't lots of people, but there, were, there was a lot of energy around this dwelling. And so he was teaching meditation as a continuity of self, as a perpetuation of self. It was refined capitalism, <laughs> subtle capitalism. <laughs> it is a death where self-meditation diverges from no self. It is a death. And unless we incorporate this into our practice, you know, all we're saying is that we're going to die. Is that a light bulb? Is that something like, you know, dramatic news, Titanic? You know, it's just, it's just that we're going to die. How many cemeteries have we driven by? How many obituaries have we passed through and are reading the newspaper? How many of our own relatives have died? Is it such great, devastating news to understand that we too, of this is going to happen? So this nine-part meditation practice, the Maranasati Sutra, brings us to that point. It shouldn't be depressing, although I have a feeling from some of the energy that I feel around this that it is. In fact, the benefits of it is that it gives us energy. It doesn't deplete it. I always know in hospice care whether somebody is in the spirit of hospice care, meaning the spirit of death and dying, really learning and using death and dying, or they're being depleted by death and dying, and therefore fighting against it. And you can just see it. You can watch people come and go. You can watch, listen to how they talk about their cases and how quickly they get worn out and everything. You just watch it. It's prayed right in front of, in front of your eyes of the two different styles. Now, the, the fact is that most of us have both styles within ourselves. And at times we're spirited and available and ready for the subject. At other times, it's too much. There's too much going on. And that's why, in this particular practice, I want to encourage people to be very sensitive to their needs, to really feel, especially um, people who haven't been into the, in the practice very long. Uh, your commitment to the practice may not be as strong as some of the people who have practiced longer and have meditated for a longer period of time. And therefore, this subject of death may be a little too harsh in the beginning meditation. But for those who are committed and have already motivated themselves to wake up in this life, then it becomes obvious where they, where there's a step here in the right direction. Again, it's self-motivation. We don't want to force anything on anyone here. But one thing it does do 
and is the third reflection here. The amount of time spent in our life to develop the mind is very small. Isn't that true? I remember I was in Thailand. And I had been there a year, and I was there two years, and I was there three years, and I was in my fourth year, and I thought, God, how long am I going to be here? And I got a letter from somebody that said, Rodney, you know, I, I hear your need to come back home. But nothing's happening here that's so spectacularly spectacular. Besides that, this letter went on, picture yourself at 70 years old, and say you spent two years or three years in the forest. Look at those three years compared to the other 70. And all of a sudden you begin to see that the amount of time you're spending, no matter how long it is, is very small in relationship to your whole life. How much do we really practice in the course of a day? How much time do we really spend waking up in the course of a day? One hour? Two hours? It's relatively small if we're honest with ourselves. It's relatively small compared to the rest of our lives. Dharma practice. How else we... The energy of reflecting on death will allow more time to be nourished with the energy of Dharma. Because we have to stabilize ourselves in this. And the only thing we've got when you start reflecting about I'm going to die is opening yourselves up. It forces you to open yourself up away from having. I mean, if I'm going to die and I'm like this and I'm holding on to everything, that's a tragic death. But if I'm going to die and I'm in affection and joy and I'm in contentment, see, it forces us to open. It forces us to step back from that having acquiring, wanting state. And it starts putting things in perspective a little bit so that our busy life is put seen in perspective. I mean, what's so important to do? Some of you have probably uh, been to other parts of the world, out of the country. I thought one of the important components of coming back into my own culture after being out of it for so long was a sense of, why is everybody going so fast? What is the rush? And what's so important? I mean, in the East, they don't rush like that. They rush in a different way, but they don't rush like that. And it just felt, you know, I, I still feel, I don't feel, um, even after having been back now for 15 years, I don't feel uh, encultured again. I'm not an American in the same way I was when I left. I probably never will be. It's just like I, sometimes you just see what's happening to that. Why, why is this? It just shows you things in perspective. As someone once said, we are all cruising on the Titanic, not on Carnival Cruise. <laughs> we're off playing shuffleboard, and the iceberg's right up ahead. But we don't believe it. What tragedy will force us to observe that? And the profound, the profoundness in the simplistic, in the simplistic message 
the message of simplicity, not simplistic in that sense, of being in the moment, being here now, profound quality of that, of living there. That's where death will take us. Melarepa says, death is a good practice in the beginning, middle, and end. I fled to the mountains because I feared death. I have realized emptiness, the mind's primordial mode of existence. Even if I were to die now, it would be with contentment. So these nine expressions of the sutta are to allow us to begin to think of the inevitability of our death. And the first one says, everyone has to die. Now just take that on for a week. So we just serve as a mantra. Everyone has to die. You see a roadkill? Everyone, everything has to die. Going by cemetery. Everything has to die. Fall is moving into, out of summer into winter. Everything has to die. And I too am part of that everything. I too will die. I too will die. No exceptions. How many of you have seen these old movies that are on channel 22 or whatever the channel is for the uh, classic movies? And you see the movies of, of some famous movie stars in their 20s and 30s. And they all look so young, don't they? So vital. So alive. Just like we look. Where are they now? Just look at the movie and see if any of those people are still alive. And if they are alive, what do they look like? All those famous people who have lived. The common denominator to us all is that everyone has to die. The Buddha said, young and old, foolish and wise, rich and poor, all keeping, all keep dying as a potter's clay vessel large and small, fired and unfired, all end up broken. So, too, life heads to death. And then the third reflection, or the second reflection, our life span is decreasing continuously. I don't know, sometimes when I buy something new like a sweater or shirt, I don't want to wear it and wear it out. So you wear it once, kind of look at it in the closet for a long period of time, and then it gets old anyway. It's out of style or something, and you never even wore it because you wanted to save it. <laughs> That's not living with death. <laughs> We can't save our life for a better time. Sometimes we try to protect our children from life. Can't do that. 
Can't protect themselves. Can't save, for, save ourselves for a better time. We can't preserve ourselves. What are these people, who are these people who, um, it's called something where they freeze themselves to death and hope that someday, some century, there'll be uh, a cure for death and then they'll be unfrozen. Oh my God. <laughs> Boy, that's real terror right there. So what thoughts does that kind of reflection have for you? What thoughts come up? What feelings? That's part of it. You know, that's part of it. Being strong enough, having the courage to bring, okay, I'm going to die. That shaky quality, when it really gets into your bones that you're going to die. You know, not just I'm going to die, but I'm going to die. Whoa, you know, that, that's part of this whole thing. Because what it is that keeps us from actualizing that fact is our fear. And so we have to uncover that fear in order to actualize it. We just say that. Every time you can look at a clock or a watch to bring this into focus. See a clock ticking. You progressively in every second are getting closer to your death. Every time a clock ticks. Every time you wake up in the morning. Every time you go to sleep at night, the day is over. Another day over. A day that cannot be reclaimed. And how is it we approach the next day? What is our attitude? What does that bring to us? You see how you have to have a certain degree of stability and equanimity even to approach the subject. This isn't for the lighthearted. This isn't for the person who just wants to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that because it takes you right there where we are the most resistant to life. And I hope all of us in this room have the courage to use this reflection in a more and more profound way to grow into the understanding of the joy that's on the other side of that fear in our hearts. Can we sit for a minute or two?